is you're probably not saved. There are people, the Bible makes it quite clear, there are people that honestly believe that they are okay with God that are not. And one of the ways that we know is whether or not we are living a righteous life. Righteousness being manifested inside and outside of us is a demonstration of the grace of God at work inside of us. And if we don't see that we're becoming better people over time, if we don't see that we have less and less of a desire for sin, we have less and less of a... And it doesn't mean you don't have a desire for sin, you do, but that over time that desire grows less and less for sin and more and more for God. If we don't see that process taking place, that means that we're not connected with Jesus. Jesus made it really clear. I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who does not abide in me, what? They can do nothing. Nothing's happening. If we're not connected to Jesus, the life of God's not flowing through us, and we aren't becoming more like Christ all the time. We aren't producing fruit. By the way, that fruit in that in that part of the in this when Jesus says that you produce much fruit, he is not just talking about getting people saved. I know that a lot of preachers like to just kind of put that well that you're producing much fruit means you're getting people saved. That is part of it, sure. But the more important part to the Lord is that your character and your nature is being changed to be more like Christ. That's fruit. That's why the Apostle Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, kindness, gentleness. These are the things that, the, you know, these, these are the character, the nature of Christ. And if they're not being formed in us, if they aren't becoming our DNA, then you need to go back and check on your connection with Jesus because you may not be. Now, thankfully, if you're awake enough to realize boy, I'm not really growing, then you still have an opportunity to change that. And we should. We should be constantly asking the Lord, show me, you know, I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to, to move forward. I want to, want, to be, I want to be becoming more like Jesus all the time. Anyway, let's pray and then we'll jump into Romans. Father, I thank you for uh, this morning. I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask you to open this book um, that like fresh bread for our hearts. Lord, I just, I, I, I thank you. Lord, I stand on the truth this morning, on the promise that you've made to us, that your word is alive, that it's uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it, that it, it pierces between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit, that your word accomplishes things when it's put into our lives. And Lord, we put our trust and our hope in you that as we, as we open our hearts and our minds to this word, that it will, will produce faith inside of us and that that faith will release the power of God to change us, to make us different. I pray that your word would indeed find good soil in our hearts, that it would go down deep and that it would create a, 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 life, a life-giving uh, harvest of righteousness that comes up out of our hearts, that we will see your activity within us uprooting the activity of the enemy, that every lie that the enemy has planted inside of our hearts would be uprooted by the growing 
uh, powerful root of the truth as we continue to allow you to plant your word within us. You promised us that your word would always accomplish that for which you sent it. Lord, we, re- we receive that now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. There is a reason why we should preach the Bible. There's a lot of big ideas. There's a lot of great ideas. And I could teach, I could sit here and teach you ideas all day long, and they'd be great, big, awesome, philosophical ideas. But those ideas don't carry the promise of God. The promise of God is that his word is living and active. That when we allow, when we open up and we allow his word into our hearts, that it will, it will bounce around inside of us and break things and open things and, 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 and uproot things. And that it will, that it will grow out of us. That Jesus told this, the parable of the sower went out to sow his seed and he talks about the different, but the, the one, the one good soil, it went down, the word went down inside and came up a a beautiful plant that produced much, much fruit. This, has, this is why we preach the Bible, one of the many reasons. This is why we need to spend time reading God's inspired word, because this stuff, this thing is powerful. It has the breath of God on it. And when it gets inside of you, it will change you. That's beautiful. So anyway, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. <laughs> Woo! I promise you we'll get beyond verse 2 today. We really will. You guys okay? Everybody all right? Okay. We're all safe. Oh, man. Yeah. Lord Jesus, come. We're just healing in the name of Jesus. So last week we talked a little bit about... Um, why the book of Romans was written, uh, to whom it was written, for what purpose. And then we, we just talked through the Apostle Paul's personal credentials that he, uh, that he gave to them. You know, I'm a slave of, a bond slave of Christ and set apart for the gospel of God. And we talked about the gospel that it belongs to the Lord. Now he is still talking about the gospel. The, the Apostle Paul was obsessed with the gospel. And so we might want to get our clue. The most effective preacher, teacher, missionary in history was obsessed with the gospel. You think it might be a good idea for us to be obsessed with the gospel? <laughs> uh, you know... Uh, there's there, you know, I go and I spend, I spend as much time as possible finding out who Jesus was, but you know, there are other heroes that I have from scripture and the apostle Paul is right up there in my top five for sure. Um, you know, amongst the top five, I don't know who gets first place, but Paul probably is a contender. So, um, and he's obsessed with the gospel. And whenever he starts talking about the gospel, whether he wants to or not, he goes off on a rant about the beauty of this thing, the gospel. And the gospel is 
good news. That's what the word in Greek means. Euangelion. It means good news. That's what it means. Understand what the gospel is. The gospel is not good instructions. It's important that you know that. The gospel is not instructions. The gospel is not a good set of laws. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not um, uh, It's not a philosophy. Now, when we believe the good news, it will change the way we think. But the gospel itself is not a philosophy. Okay? The gospel is not some kind of, you know... Code book for the initiated. It's, it, this is, the gospel is very simple. The gospel is very important. And the gospel is very good. Somebody tell me what the gospel is. Go. I'm assuming everyone in the room is a Christian. So you ought to know. It is good news. But tell me. Tell me the good news. What's the good news? Jesus came and he died for us. Okay. That's part of it. What does that mean, though? I mean, he died. That people die every day. That's really good news, if it means anything to me. I mean, so somebody died, they rose again. That's good news for him, but why is it good news for me? Because that means that he beat death. Well, he beat death, but what does that have to do with me? He died for your sins so that you could have eternal life. There we go. (laughs) We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, we're getting there. Let's keep going. Who was this man? Jesus. He's the Son of God. Thank you. Let's keep going. Um, he was God's only son. Okay. He was God. Okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> we need to, you need to have a 30 second. You need to have a tweet, a gospel tweet. That's what you need. You need to have, I mean it, 140 characters that can tell anybody, anyone, what the gospel is. Okay? It starts with the bad news. Okay? It starts with, you're broken, you're messed up, you already know it. Is there anybody in this room that would honestly say they were perfect? Thank you. I'm not raising my hand because I would say that, because I would do not say that. I am not perfect. Every human being on the planet knows that they are not perfect, that they are messed up, that they have brokenness within them. So it begins there. You have brokenness within you. It's called sin. I know that that word's not popular in our modern day. That's why I like brokenness better. Because when I say to you, you have sin, it sounds like I'm better than you, but that's not true. We're broken, you and I. But the one who created us in the first place became one of us, lived his whole life unbroken, showing us what it looked like to be a whole human being. And then we killed him, you and I. Our brokenness could not stand his unbrokenness. And we rose up and we killed him. But when he died, he took our brokenness with him 
and he killed our brokenness. And then he rose from the dead to give his wholeness to everyone else. And now he's offering it to you. Do you want to be whole or not you? That's the gospel. That's one version. It's a million ways to say it. But that's one version. What? I know. I was just trying to, you know, help you understand. It needs to be pithy. It needs to be small. It needs to be short. And it needs to be understandable. And it needs to be obvious why this is good news to them. Okay? But that's the gospel. The gospel is, you're broke. Jesus died so you could be healed. Now you can, that's, you're broke. Jesus died so you could be healed. That's your 140 characters right there. That's a good tweet right there. You're broke. Jesus died so you could be, died and rose again so you could be healed. That's all you, we have to say. That's the good news. There's nobody on the planet that would say they're not broke. Just nobody. There's nobody on the planet. Because, I mean, you can press them on it. They might at first say, there's nothing wrong with me. And then you would say, really? You've never lied. You've never stolen anything. You've never said something to someone that hurt them. Nobody on the planet can say those, any of those statements. Everyone has lied. Everyone has stolen something. And everyone has said something that has hurt someone else. Everyone. There's just nobody. We don't... <coughs> We can talk more about original sin at another time. Okay. So, I, 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 if we accomplish nothing else through our study of Romans, which I'm hoping the Lord accomplishes much more, but if we accomplish nothing else through our study of Romans, I want you to leave this study obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God. I want you to leave, I want, the gospel to keep you up at night. I want the gospel, I want you to be thinking about it constantly. I want you to be to be amazed by the generosity of God that he would do anything for someone that is as horrible as you. I, I want you to be uh, astounded by the, the, the beauty of, of the way that God planned this all out so that he could provide forgiveness to you and yet stay holy himself. And this book is all about that. That God, that God without, with, without devaluing his own glory, people are going to ask you this. Why, why can't God just forgive me? Why, did, why would Jesus have to die? Why can't God just say, you know what, don't worry about it. I mean, that's what I do, right? When someone hurts me, I'm just like, you know what? Don't worry about it. And then I forget about it and it's all okay. Why can't I do that? You need to have an answer to that. Because the world does not understand the cross or the necessity of the cross. The world doesn't get it. And the Bible says that they won't. In this very book, it says it's, it's foolishness to the Greek and it's a stumbling block to the Jew. They don't understand the cross, the cross is offensive. The cross is ugly. The cross is, is, is difficult. And whenever they see it, they got to be like, Wah! because that's the only reaction we can have to the cross. But without the cross, there's no gospel. 
And they don't understand that. Why can't, if God's so loving, why can't he just say, you know what, don't worry about it? Do you know the answer to that question? Because, I was going to say because he's just and that wouldn't be like super just or the consequence of what we were doing. That is a big part of it, yeah. If you had a judge sitting in the court of law, and in some states judges are elected, although not in Indiana, we vote, they vote for who gets to sit on the bench. Okay. And this judge sits and there is a, a mass murderer that comes up before the judge. And the judge, the mass murderer says, I, no need to go through. I did it. I killed all those people. And I enjoyed it. And I will do it again. I, I am guilty. So I don't even need to be. I don't want a defense. I did this. I'm guilty. That's the way it is. And the judge looked at him and said, well, you seem like a nice guy, so don't worry about it. You're free. Would anybody be okay with that? No. Why? Because you're basically letting him accept that behavior like you're accepting it. Absolutely. Like, you are stating that what he did is okay. And that he can continue to do it with no consequences. He doesn't learn anything, so he does it again. Well, he doesn't learn anything, and there's going to be future victims to his, okay? Would we or would we not fire that judge immediately? Would we or would we not? We would. Of course we would. Because that's not just. Well, how is that different than what God did for you? There was punishment. <coughs> exactly. There was punishment. Justice has been served. Exactly. That's part of it. Another part of it is this. What makes sin, sin? At the base bottom level, what makes the difference between something that's a sin and not a sin? No, you're close. It has to do with God. But why is, why is disobeying God wrong? Exactly. The primary, foundational, under everything else, reality of the universe, that which holds all things together is this, that God is the most valuable reality in the universe. His glory is more important than everything else, including human life. His glory stands above all else. If God is not being glorified, the universe is being destroyed. That's the truth. When you devalue the glory of God, you are disintegrating the universe. And that's what sin is. A devaluation of the glory of God. That's why Romans 3.23 says what? And, for all have sinned and... Exactly. That is what sin is. A devaluation of the glory of God. That is why you can do really good things and still be sinning if you are the one who gets the credit. Because you're receiving glory and he's not. 
Now, we will talk a lot more about this idea because this is a huge idea that my guess is many of you have never heard. It is one of the most foundational principles in Scripture, but churches don't teach it because it's difficult and it's a little offensive. But Jesus exalted the glory of God in his own death and forgave you at the same time. And he turned what would have been. If God had just said, you know what, forget about it. That means God would have to change who he is, change how he feels, change his, he would have to devalue his own glory to do that. And he refuses, he will not. He cannot. It's the minute that he devalues his own glory, everything ceases to exist. It's just the way it is. But he also loves you and wanted to forgive you and wanted to give, wanted to be the forgiver of sinners. And so he had to find a way to forgive sin, but stay just at the same time, because that's who he is. The glory of God is who he is, his nature, his character, his reality. He had to stay himself and forgive sin at the same time. And the only way he could do that was by becoming a human, living a sinless life, and then dying for your sin so that he can be just and forgiver at the same time. And we'll learn about that in Romans chapter 5, if we ever get there. Okay, this is the gospel, and I want you thinking about it. And when you run into ideas that are like, boy, I don't know how I feel about that in the midst of the gospel. As you begin to plow through this idea of God, holy God, the forgiver of sins, making a way, there is a whole bunch of stuff in there that is dangerous. A whole bunch of thoughts in, in there that God's already thought his way around and God's already worked his way around, but we don't necessarily connect with them. And we're going to run into them as we walk through this book. We're going to run smack into them. And we're going to have to be like, whoa. Like, for instance, God forgave people in the Old Testament before Jesus died on the cross. Explain that. It's a big deal. Okay, that's just one. There's a bunch. There's a bunch of like pitfalls where it's where we're just going to be like, what? How did that work? If these are the rules, how did this work? And we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to have to walk through it. We're going to have to pray through it. We're going to have to wrestle with it. We're going to pull out scripture and say, what does the Bible say? And that's what I want you to do. I want you mess. I want you coming to this to this classroom saying, I don't think the gospel is true. That's what I, I, I really, I mean, I want you to be messed up by this stuff because it's the most important reality in the universe that we're grappling with here. It's more important than the breath you breathe. We don't really connect with the weight of this thing, but we've got to. We've got to. Now, back to Paul. He's been, he's obsessed with the gospel. Just get used to it. This is how it goes, right, guys? <laughs> okay, verse 2. Okay, remember, set apart for the gospel of God is the beginning of this sentence, which he promised beforehand through, the pro- through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I, this is so good. God has been talking about the gospel from the beginning. He's been talking about it since Eden. 
since the very first sin. And that's because God knew they were going to sin before they did. One of the realities of God that we are really going to have to wrestle with this in this is his foreknowledge. I'm skating dangerously close to predestination. I just figured out what predestination was the other day. Okay. And that's going to be a big fight, but we're not ready for it yet. I need to give you the tools to have the fight first. Okay. But that's, but God's foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge is a reality. The Bible declares it, that God knows everything before it happens. Okay, that's, that's just a reality. God has perfect foreknowledge of all of the entire future. He stands outside of time. Okay, and so he knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. Why did he let them? Really? I, I, I'm just throwing out ideas. Don't look at me like that. I free will. Free will Stop it. is a dangerous <laughs> idea. Okay, free will. I'm, I'm, we'll, that, we'll let that stand for the moment. Uh, uh, but that, is, but what like, else? Why would God control us? Why, why would he create something to glorify him and worship him when it's all him making us do it? You're absolutely right. There's no point in that. Exactly. God can... Unless he created, he created, exactly. Well, you know, I, I think they might have free will too, but I, I don't know that. <laughs> well, for a fact. But regardless, <laughs> regardless, you're absolutely right. God created a being who was just like himself, set him in a perfect setting. No, but knowing that before long, see the question, is, why did God put that tree in the garden at all? Because without choice, there is no love. That's reality. And God is not interested. God is not glorified by a robot who only does what he tells him to do. The glory God was looking for was the glory that comes from those who see his worth independent and call it worthy. He gave us the ability to see his word, but he did not force us to acknowledge it. The only way to not force is to give someone the choice to choose between the worthy thing and the unworthy thing. And we chose the unworthy. What was Eve doing when she reached for that fruit, whatever it was, it wasn't an apple, by the way. Well, it might have been, but we don't know for sure. Some of the Jewish scribes thought that it was a grape. I just thought of a really good illustration. Yeah. Um, uh, like, say you were searching for a husband or a wife. Uh, you wouldn't want a uh, husband that was forced to love you. You would want him to choose to love you. Yes. Because you wouldn't get any satisfaction out of it if he was forced to love you. Yeah. It's like uh, in SpongeBob Plankton. <laughs> uh, he has that computer wife. He invented her. She is forced to love. She is forced to love him, but he's never really satisfied with just that computer wife. 
that's that. I love SpongeBob. I, I love SpongeBob references. I agree. No, but that's totally true. How it's not love when it's when it's forced, is it? Love is not forced. We have a word for that. It's called rape. It's the truth. Is it not? Okay. We we're not okay with that. We're not. And that's because God created us to freely choose to love him, to call him worthy because we find him worthy, not because he forces us to find him worthy. So he gave them an option. Here's the tree of life. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's worth, glory, life, abundance, beauty. Here is death. And he told them the honest truth. This tree will kill you. This tree will give you life. You need to know that. So don't touch this tree. I love you. I don't want you to touch this tree because it will kill you. And Satan pulled the wool over their eyes and made them believe that death was worth it. He turned their whole world upside down and told them that God was not worthy of their love, not worthy of their attention, not worthy of their obedience. That he could offer them something they were missing, which was not true. And they received it. And when they did, they devalued the glory of God because they chose something else over God's glory. And they were instantly, they received what they reached for. Because it's not a choice if you don't get to choose. This was God saying to them, guess what? There you go. But at the same time, (laughs) God knew what he was going to do. God knew before he ever created Adam and Eve that he was going to send his son, the the second person of the Trinity, Christ the Son, the image of the invisible God. He was going to put him in human flesh. He was going to have him die so that human beings could be redeemed. God already knew what he was going to do. And he talked about it. For all of the all, all of the old covenant was a gigantic shouting picture of what he was about to do. All of the old covenant, all of the old testament, every dealing he had with every human from Adam all the way to Jesus was a picture of what he was about to do. God is a terrible secret keeper. He loves, he gets so excited about his plans that he just whispers them to all his friends. It's true. Like God is constant. uh, Amos chapter three, verse seven says this. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Can you see God like getting so giddy and so excited about what he's about to do? He's like, I got to tell you about this. This is going to be so awesome, but you can't tell me. This is what's going to (laughs) happen. God constantly did this. He's like, I got this plan and I'm so excited about it. I want to tell you about it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be really cool. It's not going to happen for thousands of years. You're never going to see it yourself. It's going to be okay. I just said, but I just need to talk to somebody about it because I'm just really excited. Have you ever like 
been, you know, like planning a surprise party and it just kills you that you can't say anything to the person like because, you know, you're thinking about them and you're like, oh, this is going to be so awesome. So you tell everybody except them. And you're like, but do not say anything. Right. Oh, come on. That's fun. You know, you buy an awesome gift for somebody and you're just like, when you love people, you, you make plans for them, you know? I mean, it's exciting. Well, God just, he's always, he's always constantly telling people about what he's planning because he's so excited about it. He's so, like, filled to the brim with excitement about what he's about to do. And not only that, but there is this thing, that we're, it's another thing that we're going to talk about a lot in here. And that is that God does not do anything without human cooperation, I just laid a new floor in my living room, okay? And I had one of the guys from my church, a young guy named Corey. He he knows how to do this kind of stuff, and I really don't. <laughs> so I asked him to come over with all his tools to help me do this. And really, I was having him do it. I was his assistant. That was really the truth. Um, but so he came over, and we were working on it. Well, the first day, it was just us in the house, and so we got things done quickly. But the second day, Ian and Lily and Isaac and Aiden were there. Well, Isaac and Aiden could care less what we're up to. They just want to uh, you know, avoid work as much as humanly possible. So they were just staying out of it. But Ian was constantly standing there going, can I help? What can I do? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I whatever? And, and he was driving me nuts. Because it's like, dude, get out of the way. You know, like, I mean, that was my first, my first inclination was, you're slowing me down and I just want to be finished. Okay. But eventually I realized I'm a jerk and I should invite my son. So I started asking him to help me in little ways that he could help me. And the truth is he was messing things up and making things more difficult. (laughs) But I was enjoying his company. I was enjoying having him there with me. It was, you know, kind of a bonding experience, working together, father and son, just, you know, this is fun, right? God feels the same way about us. We screw this thing up every time, but he's not willing to do it without us. We screw up everything that he wants to do. We make a big mess of it. We do it terribly. He's like, okay, I want, here's this word. I want you to preach it to them. And we get up and we just... <laughs> poop all over it. And God's like, it's okay. I'm still going to do good things. Many times when I preach, I say, God, I just pray that everything that comes out of my mouth, that's not you, that they just forget it. And that whatever is yours, that that would just be what sticks in their heart because I tend to screw things up. I am not like ashamed or, or, uh, uh, I like earthy references, you know, stuff that has to do with poop and pee and whatever, because everyone can connect with those. You know, I talk about food. It's true. Everyone poops. Okay. It's just the truth. Even Jesus pooped. And we can talk about that. Exactly. We can talk about that. Some other time, I you know, I he did. Jesus pooped. He had B.O. He probably had acne when he was a teenager. I mean, it, Jesus was, you know, Jesus was a human. So all of these things are true. I know you don't think about Jesus wiping his own butt, but he did. Okay. And, and I mean, it's just reality. Of it. And I like using those kind of, 
But those kind of those kind of like reference points, there are there are people in the church to get extremely offended by them. I in in this church, I we were preaching through the book of Joshua, and and I was given the assignment to preach on the 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 city of Jericho and walking around the wall and and that whole thing that happened. And uh, and so I was preaching about it, and I was talking about how sometimes God chooses to take us the most ridiculous route to get to a place just to prove that he's the one that did it. Like it's like Elijah, when he dumped all the water on the sacrifice before he called fire down on it, because only God could burn a sopping wet sacrifice. Right. Okay. Well, to me, that whole story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho is just like that because you've got this, you know, gigantic army of Israelites that are coming and when, you know, me, I would have done, I would have gone with surprise attack, right? Because all of a sudden we're overwhelmed, you know, just, you know, and, but no, God's like, what I want you to do is I want you to parade yourself around the wall every day for seven days so they can really get a really good look at you. And so they aren't afraid of you at all anymore. And so they finally just say, you know, these people are never going to attack. I mean, like they lose all fear of you. That was God how, I mean, that's. And I was I was saying that by day four or day five they were probably being mooned from the wall because <laughs> it's true you know the first day everybody's inside going oh no they're gonna kill us the second day it's like well they didn't kill us yesterday but wow that's a big army third day they're like you know what maybe these guys are never gonna do anything fourth day they're all standing on the top of the wall like you know and I said I didn't think it, I, I thought that it was probably possible that they were mooning people from the top of the wall like come get us right. Okay. Really? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I said that in a sermon on a Sunday morning at this church, and there were people in this church that were really mad at me, like livid with really me. Old. They were furious that I would say that someone got mooned. On a Sunday. No, I didn't moon anyone. I didn't, you know, I mean, it's not offensive. It's not offensive. This is what it would have looked like. No, I didn't do that. I mean, I didn't do it. I, I did not understand how in the world they could be offended by this, but they were really offended. They went to the board. They were like, he needs to be, you know, disciplined. I mean, it was a big deal. People were mad at me. See, when God wants to say something, our humanness tends to just kind of you know, do bad things to it. And and when I said that, it definitely was used by the enemy to stir somebody up so they could never hear what I actually had to say in that sermon. Because the whole time we're like, oh, he said moon. Here's a close-up photograph of what I think that might have looked like. <laughs> See the mole on this guy's butt right there? <laughs> God always chooses to work through human vessels. And we're, we're, you know, the Apostle Paul talked about this. He said, he said he's hidden his treasure in earthen vessels. It's the truth. God has he's give, put the gospel out there. Have you ever thought about the... The, the foolishness of God to, and to give the gospel to human beings to share it? I mean, don't you think, like, okay, if there was a gathering of atheists and Michael the archangel showed up in the middle like, Aah! 
oh, you know, fiery sword, just 20 feet tall. And he was like, you should all believe in Jesus. Don't you think everyone in that room would get saved? I personally think everyone in that room would be on their knees just like, oh, Jesus, you know. I just, you know, I mean, that would be insane. But God doesn't do that. God sends people like me. <laughs> That'd be awesome. It would be awesome. I heard about this guy who had an angel visit him, and the angel was like in his room, like totally cramped. Like he was so tall that he was like all bent over like this. And he's talking to the guy, and he says, "I have to go soon because I'm not used to being to slowing down this much. I I usually move." much faster than this and this is difficult for me and he's like all crouched down but god sent me to give you this message so here it is and then he disappears i don't even know about that but it's, yeah I, I heard i heard that story that this angel is just like all crouched down in the room like okay so i don't know how that works but so he had promised all he had promised the gospel through his prophets in the holy scriptures god's been talking about this from the beginning he's really excited about it remember it's his plan it's his idea and he loves this idea and he's been he's been speaking about it all through the old testament the whole old covenant is the bible says shadows and types of the new he's giving picture after picture after picture depiction after depiction idea after idea that is building a beautiful foundation upon which the new covenant can sit a lot of i have heard of christians that like that are like oh i don't read the old testament because it's the old covenant and i need to be I just want to slap them in the face. <laughs> there is no new covenant without the old. That's just, there isn't. Okay? It was in the, the old covenant that God promised the new. And the new covenant is the, is, you know, it's the manifestation of the old. It's, it's, it's the completion of the old. It's the next step from the old. You can't throw the old away. Now, we need to interpret it in the light of Christ. We don't look at it. You know, we need to interpret the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. So when it says things like, you know, there, there are laws there that we can, we honestly just don't even, like for instance, in the part of the Old Covenant was that a man should not trim his beard. Okay. That's just, that's a reality. That's, that's true. And I was a people that, people that come at me with like, the verse that says that you shouldn't get like that they say it says you shouldn't get tattoos that's not what the verse actually says but it says you shouldn't mark your body for the dead that's what it says and 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 yes that was a tattoo but that's not what most people that get tattoos nowadays they're not worshiping their ancestors and that's what was going on and that was being described but they come at me with that verse and i'm like i always ask them do you know what the next verse says especially if they're a man do you know what the next verse says no it says that you shouldn't trim your beard, and yet you have no facial hair. So who's the sinner here? <laughs> I don't know. Yours looks pretty well groomed. Got well. It's not. It's not. I need to. We have. We're doing our directory pictures right now too. Uh, up in Fremont, and I need to trim because I'm a little bushy. But yeah, so God always wants human agreement and partnership in everything that He does. Have you ever thought about? Have you ever thought about prayer? 
Have you thought about prayer for even five minutes? I'm sure you've done a lot of praying, but have you actually thought about prayer? What the heck is prayer all about? How does this thing even work? Why does God want us to talk to him about things he already knows? Not kind of, it is. That's what it is. Absolutely. So it's not about information? It's not just getting things from God. It's about relationship? Who knew? Prayer is not about informing God. It's about relationship with God? I had no clue. Yeah, I did. I knew. That's what prayer is about. That's what prayer is for. And God creates these ways. He tells us to pray, does he not? He tells us to pray. And not only that, God has made it real clear in Scripture that if we don't pray, he don't act. (laughs) Sometimes I use improper grammar to illustrate a point. If you don't pray. You don't pray, he don't act. That means be a t-shirt, okay? It's the truth, though. If you don't pray, God won't act, and that's how it works. God waits. He pens his promises on our prayers. This is insane. All the way down, all the way. What is one of the things that Jesus told us to pray in the disciples' prayer? When the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. There's this prayer that we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer because he was giving it to them, saying, you pray this way. Okay, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we praying for there? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Sure, but thy kingdom come, what does that mean? Really? I don't <laughs> We are praying for the second coming of Christ. And we're praying for more than that. But one of the, because thy kingdom come, thy kingdom, his kingdom is right here. It's right now. It's in the midst of this. But the fulfillment of the fullness of his kingdom coming will be when Jesus takes up a, a, an actual throne in the, on, the honest to goodness earthly city of Jerusalem and rules the world. Okay, as a human sitting on a human throne, ruling the planet from the city of Jerusalem. Wow, it's going to be amazing. That's going to be amazing. Can you imagine the press conferences? <laughs> from the city of Jerusalem, here's Jesus. <laughs> Ruler of the universe. Okay. <laughs> it's going to happen. That's really going to happen. Have you thought about that at all? That's entirely possible. I don't know. Or maybe all of us who are resurrected Christians at the time will just be human screens. We'll just like, like you know, like, or just open our chest to be on there. I don't know. And it's just on our forehead. Jesus is talking. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. Regardless, Jesus will be the. Re- that is what we are praying for. Now, just wait just a second, because I want you to think about this. I love thinking about. I love thinking about the millennial 
reign of Jesus and what that's going to be like because we just don't have any grid. I mean, we just don't understand what it's going to be like that love will be the law of the land. I mean, think about that for a minute. That that's um, that's incredible. Okay, but he asked us to pray for that. Now, most of us think of the second coming of Jesus as this thing out there that's just going to happen. What if it's not going to happen until enough people have prayed, thy kingdom come, enough times? That'll mess with your head. The very second coming of Jesus Christ will be brought about through intercession and prayer. Okay? The first coming of Jesus was brought about through intercession and prayer. The Bible tells us about two of the intercessors that brought it about. One of them's name was Simeon, the other's name was Anna. And they were in the temple, night and day, praying for the coming of Messiah. And then they saw him walk in the door. God used their intercession and the intercession of thousands of, of people of faith before them to bring about the first coming of Jesus. And now he is waiting on the church to pray in the second coming of Jesus. That'll mess with your head, and it should. I love it. So God has been talking about this beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3. Concerning his son. <laughs> it's 10.30 and we just got to verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Okay, they called Jesus the son of David because he was. There's a reason why we have genealogies in the New Testament. Adam begat, Seth begat, okay. I don't think, you know, Adam, who had a son named Seth, who had a son named blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all those genealogies are important. Why? Because God made specific promises to specific families that he wants to be shown as keeping that promise. And one of those families was David's family. In Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God told David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, David. That's what he said to him. The fulfillment of that promise is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. But it, Jesus would not have been the fulfillment of that promise if Jesus had not been a descendant of David. Does that make sense? Wait, what? Okay, so he said that David's kingdom would forever be on whatever. David's throne, his throne. dynasty, the king, his kingdom. Yes, but Solomon was still considered part of. You know, Solomon was David's son, so Solomon was the inheritor of David's kingdom, David's throne. It began with David, and it moved forward, and Jesus. A descendant of David, many, many generations later, is now the inheritor of the throne of David. He will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's the throne he will sit on. Now you're saying, wait a minute, there's been 2,000 years. There was like 2,000 years there, 1,943 years-ish, where Israel wasn't even a nation. 
So how does that work? Well, God does not say that there won't be gaps. Besides, Jesus came before then, and he, you know, in one way, but Jesus didn't have an earthly throne. Okay, what he says is, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Leave me alone. So, David was given that promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And that's why it's important that we know that he's the son of David according to the flesh. Now, the cool thing is, Jesus was the son of David through his mother and his adopted father. Both. Jesus had, Jesus did not have a human father. We know this. He was born of a virgin. His mother had never, she did not have sex with a man that created Jesus. That did not happen. Mary, God just put Jesus in Mary's body, but she, he was her son genetically. Don't ask me how I, don't ask me how all that works, because I don't know. Truth is, you know, in nature, there's many times when uh, there's a thing called oophagenesis. I don't know if you guys know about this, but where females who never have contact with a male can have a baby. That happens in nature. But the only thing they can produce is another female. Because females don't have a Y chromosome. Not humans though, right? It's never happened that we know of with a human. It's never happened that we know of with a human. That doesn't mean it couldn't. Because it could. Possibly. Why are you pregnant? It was from Genesis. I don't know. That's what happened. You don't think that discussion happened with Mary? Yeah. I mean, come on. Do you think most people believed her when she said, an angel visited me? (laughs) They would have said, yeah, right. And there were a whole bunch of rumors. In fact, during the time when Jesus is alive, there there were people that said that Mary had been raped by a Roman soldier and that Jesus was that child. That's out there. Okay? But that's not what happened. Mary never knew a man until... After Jesus was born. Now, there's the Catholic Church will tell you that Mary remained a virgin until she died. That's stupidity. She didn't. She was married. Well, most people don't think that James or the other or or uh, Jude Jude were Mary's kids. They think that they were Joseph's kids from a previous. Marriage. It seems that James might be older than Jesus, but we don't know for sure. Okay. Regardless, the Bible says Mary and Joseph did not come together sexually until after Jesus was born. It doesn't say they never did. This was a married couple. It was unlawful in the Jewish world for a married couple to remain sexless. It's true. They had to. I just, I'm in favor of that law. Um, <laughs> all right. So, according to the, his human lineage, he's the son of David, verse 4. But he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Okay? We've got to understand that Jesus' resurrection is an absolutely integral part of the gospel. 
Don't just say Jesus died for our sins. That's only the beginning. If all Jesus did was die, we have, that's not good news. That's not good news. Unless he rose from the dead, it's not good news. Because guess what? That means we are still going to die. That means that death is still out there to be defeated as an enemy of the human race. That death is just, that's what all of us are going to have to face. And the truth is, it's very likely that every person in this room will die. Not to bum you out. But the rapture is coming at some point. (coughs) The end of the tribulation. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> the, rapture is, the rapture is coming and the Bible's clear there will be some Christians on the earth alive when the rapture takes place that will never know death. They will. That's why he says we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed because there are some. OK, because there are some who won't die. There are. People who will be alive when the trumpet sounds and they will be raptured. They will go immediately from normal body to resurrection body without death and decay in between. But we don't know, how, we don't know when that's going to happen. That may not happen for another thousand years. It may happen tomorrow. We don't know. Later on today. Or today. It could happen <laughs> now. <laughs> we did this whole video years ago about... About oh my gosh. bad moments for the rapture. <laughs> Preston was in line to get on a roller coaster, and the rapture happened like right as he was about to get on. Johnny Bird was about to was about to lose his virginity after his marriage, and then the rapture happened. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, we had one guy who was sitting on the on the toilet when the rapture happened, and we had someone who was left behind in the by the rapture who was who was stuck outside the bathroom, really having to pee. But the person inside had been raptured, so the door was still locked. And, that was Haley. That was Haley. Yeah. We we thought of lots of. Awkward moments for the rapture, but <laughs> yeah, it's out on YouTube or something. You can go find it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it was Christmas, and they had bought a puppy for their kids, and the whole family gets raptured, but the puppy's still in the box. <laughs> and you're zooming in on the present, and you can hear Preston's mom doing a puppy impression. <laughs> So we get out of the box. Oh, it's just terrible. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my gosh. It's out there. It's out there on YouTube somewhere. I don't know. No. You, you know, you might be able to get to it from my website though, because I think I have like a link to that YouTube channel. What's your website called? PastorJoshHawkins.com. Wow, that's that's hard. I know. That was the point, you know, to make it. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection is absolutely important. First Corinthians 15, verse 13 through 14 says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. The resurrection 
is necessary for the gospel to be good news. Period. Okay? And it is what declares to everyone that everything that Jesus said when he was on the earth is true because he rose from the dead. And his resurrection is one of those things that any unbeliever has to look at full in the face because there is really good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's there. There's a whole book written by, I think, Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how historically there is no reason to believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. That if, it, if this case was taken into the court of law, they would have to rule that Jesus rose from the dead. We have more evidence historically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than we do for the Caesar's Gallic Wars. You guys don't know what that is, but it's still true. Jesus rose from the dead. And that is an essential part of the gospel, which is why he mentions it here. Because it declares that Jesus is the Son of God and has the power to raise us from the dead. If Jesus only forgave our sins but did not have power to defeat death, then we would, be looking, we would not be looking forward to new life. We would not be able to experience new life right now. His resurrection life is released into us and it is our new creation and our resurrection from the dead. Resurrection, the resurrection bomb has been set off inside of you and it's going to continue to move through you and into you until every part of you has been resurrected. It began with your spirit, which was dead from the moment you were conceived because of original sin. Your spirit, that inner part of you that connects with God, was dead when you were born, lifeless. And God resurrected it because the word of God went in there and gave and produced faith in you, which gave the, you know, the clear, okay, to your spirit, brought your spirit to life. And now, because the Holy Spirit came and wrapped around it and gave it new life. And now the Holy Spirit is flowing through your spirit to pour life into your soul and into your body. And that life will continue to move outward from your spirit, through your soul, into your body until one day your actual physical form will be resurrected and made completely new. It's called the new creation, that whole process. That whole process will not be completed until the second coming of Christ. That's when your physical body will will receive resurrection. But the rest of you, your inward man is being resurrected right now. You have resurrection power at work in you in this moment. That's really awesome. Think about that. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is raising you from the dead from the inside out, little by little by little, as we cooperate with him. He, the resurrection power is the Holy Spirit. That's who he is. And that's what we're going to find out in this next phrase. According to the spirit of holiness. Because that's who he is. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness. And he's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And he is raising you from the dead from the inside out. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Okay. Jesus gives grace. What is grace? Do I have any JBQers in here? What is grace? 
What's the definition of grace? It's. I've done ten pointers since I was a peewee. I don't care. You should still know it. Unmerited favor. You guys are boring. <laughs> what does that mean, unmerited favor? You didn't earn it. It came to you for free. You can't earn it. That's what grace means. Every time you read the word grace, read this word. Something given to me for free that I did not earn. That's what grace means. Every time you see it. Every time you see it. Remember what it means. Because everybody kind of like puts it. People, people, they take mercy and grace and they flip them around. But they're not the same thing. Mercy means you deserve punishment, but I'm not giving it to you. And that's awesome. Grace means you deserve nothing, I'm giving you everything. That's better. Mercy is you broke the law, but I'm not sending you to jail. That's mercy. Were we given mercy and grace though? You were. But I I you know, I'm more excited about grace. Because mercy is just I should hit you, but I'm not going to. That's mercy. I am happy about that. I am extremely happy about that. But I'm more happy about grace because grace, mercy just brings us back to the zero line. That's all mercy does. It brings us back to the, you're not guilty, but you're not innocent. That's all it does. It just brings us back to the, you know, to the zero line. Grace takes us beyond and makes us more than we are. Gives us more than we are. It gives us his righteousness. It gives us all of the things, all the credit that was given to Jesus is now ours. That's insane. The righteous work that Jesus did sits on us. And when Jesus looks at us, or when Father looks at us, he sees all the righteousness of Jesus. That's incredible. That's grace. Grace takes us, just heaps on us Everything we do not deserve pours on us all the beauty and the glory of God and says, here, it's yours. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified. Those he justified, he called. Those he called, he glorified. We're going to get to that in chapter 9. He glorified. That's our destiny. To reflect, refract, and carry the glory of God for all of eternity. That is our destiny. We have been clothed in the Glory of God because of what Jesus did. That's grace. That's incredible. You guys are boring. You don't even understand. <laughs> I mean, if you had any glimpse of how incredible this was, you'd be hanging from the ceiling just going, wow! You would be un- you've got to come to un- the understanding. We've been given so much more than just forgiveness for our sins. We've been given so much more than just an insurance plan that keeps us out of hell. We've been given so much more than that. We've been given the glory of God as an inheritance. The most valuable thing in all the universe is our inheritance, and it begins now, this moment. We have what the Bible calls eternal life, not just eternally long, but eternally good, always getting better forever and ever. That's what the word eternal means in the New Testament. Always getting better forever and ever. Oh my gosh, how can we not? This is good news. Are you with me? I don't know what that's going to do to the recording, but I don't care. Through whom we've received grace, okay, and apostleship. And when he says we, he's using a royal we, okay? He's using a royal we, which he was just referring to himself, okay? We have received, I have received apostleship. He's received this calling 
that God's given to him as as apostle. It's another work of grace that God is doing in his life. God came to a man who hated Christ, knocked him off the donkey, put him on the ground, made him blind, said, I'm going to forgive you whether you like it or not. <laughs> you need to come to me. And he made him, he's like, ah! you know, and he says, and then I'm sending you to the world as an apostle to preach to the Gentiles and tell them about my glory. Well, that's, and you know, the apostle Paul did not really have a choice about this. God just said, this is what's going to happen, boy. And that's the way it is. Okay, God called him in that moment, awoken, and he was given apostleship in that moment. Authority, power, position, and platform was given to him, okay, by the grace of God. To bring about, this is the most important thing I'm going to say all day, maybe, and we have nine minutes to say it, to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. This is the Apostle Paul's job description. As an apostle, this is what he does. His job is to bring about obedience that comes from faith. That's what the Christian life looks like. You want to know why you should obey? Because you believe. Do you want to know if you truly believe? Look at how much you obey. Because they are connected. If you believe, you will obey. If you do not believe, you will not. This obedience comes from faith. And it's the Apostle Paul's job. This is all he does. This is who he is. This is his life. Is to bring about obedience that comes from faith. Obedience of faith. Obedience that arises from faith. Explodes out of faith. Is given power by faith. That faith is the origin of the birthplace of obedience. Faith produces obedience. Belief produces action or it's not belief. People say all the time, well, I believe that, but I don't know. No, unless it's reflected in your actions, you don't believe it, period. You can say all day that you believe it, but unless it changes your activity, you do not believe it. That's just the truth. It is not real belief until it shapes the way you live your life. And it's got to go all the way down to the reflexive place. To the way you feel about something when it's said. Not when you have time to think about it and mull it over. No, that it's like instantaneous. Your response without thinking is to act in accordance to belief. That's when belief really happens. People talk about the journey from your heart, from your head to your heart, right? People talk about it all the time. I'm telling you the truth. Biblically, not, it's not about what exists up here ever. It is never about what you, the facts that you are willing to say, I think that might be true. The Bible does not have any respect for those facts. Paul himself said, knowledge puffs up. Your head can be full of facts. If it never makes it to your heart, it's nothing, it's worthless, it's powerless. In fact, it actually accuses you in the eyes of the Lord. Because you've got the knowledge and yet you still don't live like it. 
This is actually one of the things that I have an issue with when it comes to junior Bible quiz. I did junior Bible quiz. And I had my head so full of God facts. But it wasn't until I was 13, 14 years old that God facts became a life in God. And I don't have anything against God facts. But if I'm not telling you the truth, that unless this knowledge makes its way and begins to change who you are on the inside, it's no good to you. If I'm not making sure that this knowledge trickles down and becomes a heart reality, then I'm not helping you at all. Does that make sense? Unless obedience comes from faith. Now listen, you can obey because of fear. You can obey because you don't want to get in trouble. You can obey because, you know, you name it, because it's just your habit and it would be weird not to obey. There's a whole lot of reasons to obey. But Paul says, uh, unless it's obedience that comes from faith, it's not life-giving. It's not real. What about the fear of God? Because you said fear. Is that like, is it anything to do with the same thing or no? The fear of God is an interesting thing to talk about. We don't need to get into it. And we can talk about it another time. I mean, I mean, I'm running out of time. The fear of God is, but the Bible says that even demons believe in God and tremble. So even demons have the fear of God. Yeah. Faith produces real obedience, and it's the kind of obedience that leads to actual change. One of my favorite verses in this book is if chapter 14, verse 23. It says this, Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, that's a new definition of sin. Excuse me, What? If faith does not come from, if obedience isn't coming from faith, it's sin. You want to know why? Because it doesn't glorify God. Obedience that comes from faith is obedience that's been given to you as a gift, and the giver receives the glory. God receives the glory. Okay, I had somebody give me a car the other day, like years, not, not, like six months ago. They gave me a car. Just gave it to me for free. I receive the joy of using that car. And I love it. It's my car. I can do whatever I want with it. Okay? But the, the one who gave me the car gets the glory for that car. Not me. Can I, like, exult in the fact that, you know, I, I, I have this car? No, it was a gift. I have to point at the one who actually gave it to me and say, well, they gave it to me. Does that make sense? It was given to me. So it can't be anything that glorifies me. It glorifies the one that gave it to me. Obedience is the same way. The obedience that comes from faith doesn't, isn't yours. It came to you. It was a gift of, it's a gift from God. It was righteousness that came from God that came as a, as a part of your salvation. It was a gift given to you. And therefore your righteousness glorifies the one who gave it to you, Jesus himself. And it doesn't glorify you because you can't take credit for it. You can't say that's right. I'm a righteous person because you're not. You're a person who was given righteousness. 
And because of that, your righteousness now glorifies God and does not glorify you. And that makes it beautiful and keeps it from being sin. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, which is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works. Why? So no man can boast. Nobody can stand over anyone else and say, I'm better than you. Why? Because they didn't do, they didn't earn this. They were given it. Does that make sense? The obedience that comes from faith. We believe God is who he says he is. We believe God does what he says he will do. And we believe he is for us. So we obey. Does this make sense? Obedience that comes from there is beautiful. In the eyes of God and men, because it doesn't exalt you, it exalts him. And you don't get to own, you don't get to have, carry around this kind of self-righteous thing. That's right, I'm a good person. Because you're not. You're just a loved person. You're a receiver of grace. And you can offer that to everybody you see. You can be a receiver of grace too. I'm just a receiver of grace. And you can be a receiver of grace too. If there's any righteousness in me, it comes from God. It does not come from me. Which means he'll give it to you too. All you have to do is ask. In fact, you don't even have to ask. You just have to say, yes, I'll take it now, please. So many things in the Christian life. If we would just receive them, it would go so much better. Do you know how many people I've talked to, walked with, who've been addicted to pornography or gambling or drugs or alcohol or whatever? And the minute I can help them understand that freedom just needs to be received, they'll be free. Because most of us believe that the way to fight against sin is the law. I'm going to pull out this big stick called the law and I'm going to beat myself with it until I obey. And when I, when I mess up again, I'm going to go bad, bad Christian, bad. And eventually if I slap myself enough, then I won't do this anymore. And tell me if that's your process for becoming more righteous, who deserves the glory for that? Who did the work? You did. Is that righteousness that comes from faith? No. So how do we defeat sin? We receive Jesus' victory over sin into our lives and we walk out of it. That's how we do it. And it's the only way that works. And it is really hard. Because we have built this cage of law around our hearts. Through our whole lives, we have convinced ourselves that if we just work hard enough... God will eventually accept us. <laughs> You're a fool. God accepted you already. <laughs> Stop working for him. You can't earn what he wants to give you as a gift. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gift of grace, of righteousness, of glory. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would undo every lie in our heads that say that we can earn anything from you because we can't. Lord, that you would lead us deeper every day into obedience that comes from faith and not works.
from grace and not earn, not earning it. Whether we would step into the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be free, be dead to sin and alive to God. I love you, Jesus. Amen.